TV right now is because... Because <laughs> <laughs> you're a little hungover still? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a week-long hangover. No, no I'm just... Uh, it's the emotional hangover from oh. the physical hangover. <laughs> I understand that. Okay. It's, Oktoberfest is my favorite holiday. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, I live it up. Is, but, there, uh, is it a family I, reason that Oktoberfest? No, no, no. I just... For some reason, it makes me so happy. For some, I, I can't explain it. I just, people sitting around in tents drinking beer and eating shitty food is like, <laughs> I'm listening to polka, I love it. What is your, na- I mean, do you have a, are you German? So my last background? name is German. Let's, sorry, let me interrupt, let me introduce you okay. first. Sorry, right. we were on recording and we, uh, this was really <laughs> wonderful. Um, but, you tricked me. But uh, if I, Brianna Matsky? Yeah. Am I saying that correct? It's Brianna. Brianna, mm-hmm. thank you. I have a pet peeve when people don't correct me if I said like a students will be like my name is I'll say it incorrectly and they're like okay and then nine months goes by and I've been saying it wrong so I appreciate that <laughs> Brianna Matsky. yeah um we've already started talking but I appreciate you doing this podcast with me because it's the first one in person and I'm very grateful for that we are not videoing it on purpose because yeah I think this is good just having a conversation and we're just chatting. I will just to be honest. Um, I'm terribly nervous for the first in-person podcast. I feel like the last two years have been, I feel like I got good at zoom. Yeah. I could time the the delay a little bit and I knew how to do it. And so pardon my clunkiness. If this, if I'm a little rusty on the in-person chat, but I appreciate you doing it, but welcome. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Um, so we were chatting a little bit in the car, uh, coming up here but before we get into anything we were talking a little bit about some steve rice stuff prior and and um facebook and how we are all communicating with each other all this stuff but before we get into that um can you just tell me a little bit about like baby brianna like where'd you come from (laughs) what got you into music like what were your folks like like that sort of stuff sure uh so i grew up in minnesota and you were saying you grew up in a tiny Mm -hmm. town in ohio so um, I grew up in a bunch of small towns in Minnesota. We moved around a lot as I was growing up, so I never spent mm. more than like five or six years tops. But in, all in Minnesota? In Minnesota but always in, in Minnesota, yeah. Okay. So when I was born, my dad uh, had a farm, and my mom was a um, high school band director, and the town that we lived in was like 200 people. It was a tiny little town. Wait, so that you grew up on a farm? Well, or your dad had so farm. farming in the 80s was very, very difficult. Yeah. And so, um, you know, my mom wanted to raise a family and she was pretty much like, farming's not going to be stable enough for us to raise families. So my dad went back to school and mm-hmm. he got um, his degrees, whatever he needed to become an agricultural loan officer. And he got into banking. And wow. so that's been his whole career. And that's why we moved around so much is because he was always taking new positions and working his way up in that field. I'm sorry to make this podcast this part about your dad, but this is really interesting to me. <laughs> like what, um, what kind of farm was it? Like farms are like, that's a broad term. Like what did he, yeah. was it? Uh, I, I wish I could tell you specifically. I know he did a bunch of different things. Mm. We had some livestock for a while, but th- I mean, I was like two years old by the time he had stopped doing that. Did you ever... Did you ever talk? I mean, one of the like my dad passed away in two thousand nine, and one of the Mm -hmm. things I wish that I would like had talked to him about is a little bit about just like what was it? What was your head like when you were forty two? Yeah, I remember my when my dad was forty two, but I was tiny. You know, Um, Hmm. it's fascinating to me that he was like a farmer, Hmm. 
mm-hmm. and then to, went to sell agricultural. What was it again? He's an agricultural loan officer. Loan officer. So he's working for the bank, giving farmers loans for seed, livestock, equipment, and machinery, buildings, all of that. Did you ever? Did you ever talk to him about like what it was like to go from like it's like you being a pianist and all of a sudden being like now I'm going to be a construction worker. Well, like, what was that like for him? I have talked to him about it a little bit. He's not a super, like, effusive, expressive mm-hmm. person. Um, he's a man of few words. Mm-hmm. And so he's explained the situation in his own way to me. He grew up on a farm. Farming means something to him very deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, like, it's directly connected to, like, the heart of who he is as a person and what he thinks is important in the world. Mm. So I think it was in many ways kind of heartbreaking for him to not be able to do that for his career. But at the same time, um, I know that he's a very community-minded person. He cares very deeply for these small towns that are just fighting to survive in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Um, And he knows that his role running a small bank, a small community bank in one of those small towns means he's at the mm. heart of the life of that community and he can really help people when they need it financially. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think um, he always misses farming, but he's still very much part of that community and 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 helping to, to support other people who are and Yes. Well, I, it makes total sense. I mean, mm-hmm. that uh, I, I don't want to imply it. There's no value judgment or implication on my end. It's just it's fascinating to me. My yeah. dad changed careers a few times, but it was always he was always in sales. He was selling something, okay, like trucks or pop or whatever it was. He was always selling. But anyway, that's what did your mom do? She was the high school band director, mm-hmm. um, and then I'm the oldest of four kids. So when she had her third kid. Mm-hmm. Um, she retired and became a stay-at-home mom. Okay. Um, she still kept um, teaching piano lessons and, and was a substitute teacher whenever she could. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, that's what she did when we were growing up. And is that where you got the musical? Like, where did the music side of what you do come into play? There's musicians on both sides of my family. Nobody professional. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a love of music that runs through my mom's side and my dad's side. Um, but yeah, we had a piano in the house mm-hmm. and I grew up going with my mom to like her, her pet band gigs at the high school gym and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, I just grew up around music. We grew up, um, singing in the car all the time. That was how we kept ourselves entertained in the car. And mm-hmm. the piano thing came in, um, I was, I think I was a pretty, uh, what's the word? Like precocious kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, my mom had a beginner piano book and I knew how to read by the time I was like four. Mm-hmm. And so apparently my mom, I don't remember this, but she says that I just sat down at the piano and just started reading what it said in the book and started to play what was written in the book. And I'm going to trust your mom that that's what happened. But I think that's also what every mom sees and hears. Yeah. Like, like, I don't know. They just started playing the Goldberg variations. It just, it just came poured out of their little fingers. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and I guess she, she showed me some things too, you know, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time I was, I think, seven or eight, it was time to get a teacher. And did they, like, as you were growing up, um, what was the musical, incur- like, what was the, were there any talks of, like, what you want to do? for a living or was it totally organic the way it oh no it was just um I was I just 
played the piano. I don't know. It was one of the many things that I did. Uh, it definitely was not encouraged to be mm -hmm. um, a professional performer. Um, being a teacher would have been a reasonable mm -hmm. thing and was encouraged, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, going through school, I was one of those kids. I, was, I did everything. I did sports. Mm -hmm. I did theater, band, choir. You know, I played the oboe. I sang. You know, I did mm -hmm. uh, dance lessons. You know, everything. Um, and I was on the honor roll and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so uh, I think my parents, especially my dad, expected that I was going to go to one of the small liberal arts schools that um, is in Minnesota, mm -hmm. get a nice scholarship, not have to pay much for school, and become like a high school English teacher. Mm -hmm. um, that's not what I wanted to do. <laughs> well, let, well, let, I mean, I, I had, my parents were very, my mom is a high school or was a high school French and Spanish teacher. She's retired now. My dad was a salesman. Yeah. So education similarly was, was what they knew and was like, you can get health insurance through that. You know, yeah. that, that was the big thing with my parents was like, get health insurance, like whatever you do. And yeah. Luckily, when I got the job with So, I could at least tell my mom I had health insurance. You know, my, <laughs> I didn't have much of a salary, but I did have health insurance. Um, but, it, you know, music was never discouraged, but it was like, there was a point where in high school where I remember looking my mom and dad in the face and being like, I want to do what Joan Wenzel does. And Joan was my, she was my uh, percussion teacher since fifth grade. Mm -hmm. And the look on their face was like, damn it. <laughs> like, <laughs> we messed up. <laughs> like what, when, when you were in high school, like there, you did go on to conservatory, like after that. So like what, how did that conversation happen? Um, one second. I'm worried my cell phone's on. Oh, Sorry. It's fine. Or did I leave it in the car? Okay. I think I must have left it in the car because I don't see her. Okay. Sorry. No so, um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> yeah, that conversation was a difficult one. Um, <laughs> I, my junior year of high school started driving into the Twin Cities mm -hmm. for piano lessons with a teacher who was really good, like exclusive, like I had to audition to get, with, get in with her. And um, I just, I don't know, I guess maybe I had gone to a piano camp or something and people were talking about being a music major. Mm -hmm. And so I went to my piano teacher and I said like, could I do this? Like, could I go to music school? Am I good enough to do that? Mm -hmm. Um, and she's like, if you practice, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so once she said that it was something I could do, mm -hmm. I decided it was something I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so started working on putting together a program. I talked with her about what schools to apply for. So we made a list, you know, mm -hmm. Oberlin, um, Peabody, a bunch of other universities. Um, and so I, 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 my parents knew nothing about how that process was going to go. Mm -hmm. Because they're not in that world at all. Yeah. Um, and my teacher, honestly, was only partially in that world, too. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had to book the plane tickets and the hotel rooms. I had to figure out how to make an audition tape, all of that stuff. I was just yeah. on my own for all of it. Um, and uh, <laughs> all through this process, uh, I also applied to the University of Minnesota for the English program. Oh, wow. Okay. Just... To As, have something else there. Was it like plan B? Or? I think okay. a little. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, my, my dad refused to 
um, participate in a lot of that. He did drive me to one of the auditions mm -hmm. to show his support, but mm -hmm. I think he was so worried about about the loans more oh, than yeah. anything. He was just worried, how are you going to pay for this? You know, he mm -hmm. was thinking you could go to school in Minnesota for free, but um, I don't know. I I bombed all those auditions. <laughs> <laughs> I was I just didn't know how to prepare for something like that. Yeah. Um, this would what what year would have this would this have been? Two thousand four. I mean, it's I do want I do think it's important to note, and I do feel a little bit sometimes when I bring this up on podcasts, like I'm old man Quillen is here to just remind you, like not you, but the like younger listeners, like people, young students have zero idea that in two thousand four, you checked your email like once a week. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, oh, cool. Somebody emailed me about a gig nine days ago. Yeah. And that wasn't stressful. Mm -hmm. You then called the person on the phone or whatever, you know. And there was no, like, YouTube, there was no, like, tutorial video there to show a young high school person how to prepare for or even what you, that you might have to sight read or someone might ask you some sort of historical context question about the piece you're playing. Like, yeah. nobody told us any of that. Yeah. And... Yeah. Anyway, I'm, there's no, I'm not complaining, but I just do like, and it's not walked uphill both ways in the snow with no shoes sort of thing, but it's not, not that like it's, there was a difference. Okay. Like some folks have it a little easier now. There's way more tutorials. There's way more, there were no recordings of any pieces I was playing. Yeah. Right. Unless you know, as a you, percussionist, yeah. like it's not like you could go to YouTube to hear this really obscure multiple percussion setup that had this weird instrument that you didn't know what it was, you know? And now you do, and I'm, and I, anyway, just all that is to say, I just wanted to sort of put a pin in that, like, mm -hmm. that's a, that was a struggle, to walk in blind a little bit. Oh, absolutely. You know, I did everything I could with what I had. Mm -hmm. um, but it also was a struggle because of um, where I was coming from, I guess. Mm. I was, uh, I was the small town piano girl, you know, like, the big deal performance for me was playing the prelude and and um, uh, offertory for church on Sunday. Well, let me ask you about this, because this is an interesting... I just want to drill down on that, because, again, not to keep comparing it to... Like, I'm a small-town Ohio boy. Yeah. And, like, there is a big insecurity. Like, you, you, you hear about New York, or you watch a piano player play Carnegie Hall, and so you're like, well, if I'm not doing that, there's no way, you know? For you, like, what... Especially in piano. <laughs> like, like, of all of the instrument groups to have that insecurity... Can you just talk a little bit about like what? Talk a little bit about that. I don't have that. I'm playing a concerto where I'm snapping twigs, <laughs> and nobody knows if I'm doing it well or not because there's not 200 years of history behind it yeah. of critique and you know repertoire. Like, what was your mind like that? And, and has it changed much now? Like, oh, you're 34, it's been a like, journey. That's been a journey. Uh, you know, <laughs> when I was auditioning at Oberlin for undergrad. Mm -hmm. Back in 2004, 2005, uh, I was playing the slow movement of my Beethoven sonata. It was my first Beethoven sonata I'd ever learned in my whole life. Mm -hmm. And um, I was playing the slow movement and not doing very well. And so justifiably, maybe, the, one of the faculty members who were seated at a table behind my back, so I couldn't see them, mm -hmm. um, 
but it was a room, not a stage, so they were really close to me. One of them leaned over to the person next to them and said, she doesn't know this very well, does she? <laughs> and, but audible enough. Audi- definitely meant for me to hear. You know, that was the first time anything like that had ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say that um, over the years in the piano world, I've had m- way more experiences like that than I uh, than anyone should have to go through, you know, but that's, that's just part of the piano world is, is there is this really deep tradition and history mm-hmm. and, um, this sort of standard repertoire and standard of excellence. Mm-hmm. And if you don't fit into that in a particular way, it can be a little bit difficult to know if you are, if you are welcomed and if you belong. Um, so I definitely, have felt very insecure hmm. about my facility, my abilities. Um, I mean, in particular, early on, the insecurity makes a ton of sense. I mean, I, yeah. I have, I still have insecurities still, but like, yeah. it makes total sense when you're 19 or whatever. Like, that's kind of par for the course. As you go along, and you you have you then get facility, and then you also are at institutions like Oberlin or CCM, you know, Cincinnati here, like. Where it's like, oh, okay, I can hang. Like, I'm, I'm not the worst player in the room. Like, that that, and then you start to feel a little better about yourself. Like, yeah. How has that ebbed and flowed for you now that you're out, out of school? Like, do you still have that same feeling? Oh, or is yeah. It- I mean, sure. Uh, <laughs> I um, I. Oh gosh, how do I even explain this? I stopped caring. Somewhere in in during my doctoral degree, I stopped mm-hmm. caring if I was the best or worst pianist in the room. Mm-hmm. And I began to realize, think, thanks in large part to the mentorship of my teacher, mm-hmm. um, Elizabeth Pridnoff, uh, who just, she helped me realize like it's about finding my n- n- niche and my, what I want to express. Mm-hmm. Um, and so working in new music helped a lot with that yeah. um, because you're not putting your performance up against, like you said, 200 years of history. Um, And I guess I've just continued to walk down that path of um, realizing that it's my voice that is important. It's unique. It's special. I have, I do have something to say Mm -hmm. and I say it well. And that's all that matters to me. Mm -hmm. Of course, I have moments where I feel like Ugh, you know, why am I not playing concertos with orchestras? Mm-hmm. But I'm just not that kind of player, you know? Um, do, you, do you feel like you, like that's something you want to do? I mean... I, there's just a little bit of insecurity that hangs on from my schooling that mm-hmm. says that that's something I should want oh, to do. Oh, got it. Well, let me, let's talk about that for a second, because I, I, I'm, you know, you're teaching now, like you have, Right. I do teach. It's a unique te- teaching situation too, but yes, I do teach. But teaching is teaching and it's like I've been, you know, I have students now, you have students. Yeah. You can see a little bit of like yourself in them. You can see you can diagnose some stuff like what what do you see as your responsibility now on the other end mm-hmm. seeing a new batch of students coming in, them butting up against the very things that you butted your head up against. And then how do you and and slash, is there anything from that struggle that you're really grateful for that you're kind of like, you know what, that really sucked, but 
I'm really glad that happened. I mean, okay, that's a that's actually a huge question for me to answer. So I'm going to answer the first part. Yeah. Um, and and kind of I'm just going <laughs> to try not to ramble too much. So it's a podcast. That's what they're. For. Okay. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> we can you can ramble all you like. I don't care. <laughs> that's right. Okay. So I don't teach music majors. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I don't teach trained pianists very much. Mm. So. Uh, I have two different um, halves to my teaching work. The first half is, well, we're sitting in my living room right now. Mm-hmm. I teach kids yeah. here, like school-age kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very rare for me to work with a student who I think is going to be a music major. I'm just teaching them on their piano yeah. teacher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so my focus with them, sort of in response, in a way, to what I went through in music school, is just to find... Um, a way to express themselves, to kind of use music as that sort of release. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time to use music as a way to learn how to set goals and achieve them mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and sort of gain a sense of self-confidence and autonomy mm-hmm. in that way. Um, and I'm really passionate about doing that. So I guess I understand why my mom loved her job for so long too. Yeah. Um, what age range are you teaching? My youngest right now is seven and my oldest is 72 <laughs> that's awesome I mean, well what's the i mean what are the differences in this i mean sorry i i, I go off on a million tangents. yeah let's so if do you, it. if let's you don't go. ask this if you don't answer the second part of the question that's fine but like what are, what are the differences and what are the similarities and i'm not being glib here in teaching a 72 year old and teaching a seven year old oh yeah yeah so um they both oh gosh they they both get kind of um it's in, it, actually there's more similarity between a seven year old and a seventy two year old than there is between a seven year old and a fifteen year old because mm. um this the people who are in their seventies like retirement age folks who are taking lessons and these young children they're both um have difficulty with the fine motor control mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and so for the retirement age folks, it's often like arthritis and stiffness and, and mm. awkwardness. They're not used yeah. to learning a new skill. And for the kids, it's like they're just developing these fine motor skills. They've never tried to move right. just their fourth finger before. Um, yeah. well, okay. And so, I'd never thought about this, but it makes total sense. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, if you're asking someone to be musically expressive and to carry a phrase and to put emotion into something... Um, when they're fighting with their fine motor skills, um, that's a really unique challenge to come up against. Mm-hmm. Um, and some really beautiful musicianship, I think, comes out of that limited technique. Actually, mm. I'm really fascinated about uh, by listening to people who have limited techniques still be very musical. Mm. Um, I've been, I've, you know, in teaching some of the youngest students, I've been moved to tears by some of their musicianship sometimes. So they just, they access something even though they can't play a, an octave scale yet, mm-hmm. you know? So that's what, that's what those students have in common, yeah. And what, in terms of then, like, your view of the way, um, like, the educational systems work, um, starting in, with seven-year-olds and, you know, uh, I mean, I know that you're not actively in the school systems, but mm. you've been through the school systems. I've been through state school systems and the music programs, and I've seen the way funding happens or doesn't happen or gets taken away and like uh, i mean i was when i was in high school they that was when they took out the I remember home and industrial arts 
was like the two classes that went away. So oh, wow. the cooking and then, you know, at that time it was very gender based. I mean, it would, you know, the women went and did the cooking yep. and there, I mean, there were, were, were girls in the, in the home ec or in the industrial arts class I took, but I was like, I want to make a clock. Like that's what I did, you know, yeah. but they cut those classes, both of them because of funding and our levy didn't pass. But then that then feeds into the college systems where you, there's a, there are similar, there's a whole, there's similar issues, but there's a whole other batch of different issues yeah. that then shoot these people, all of us, these people, us out into the world to be like productive citizens. Mm-hmm. And I personally, this is dovetailing a little bit into what we were talking about prior, a little bit about Facebook and the way we're talk, the way that this stuff is talked about. I'm very curious as to why there's very there's a lot of focus on with all of these issues on fixing colleges, but very little discussion around third grade music education mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how to diversify that, how to get gender differences in those classes, how to talk about risk, like all the way that we talk about the history of the piano and the baggage, like those seeds can be planted in a healthy way with a third grader um, or just how we talk about this stuff. I feel like we're, we we're very quick to staple new leaves on the tree rather than plant water the roots. And I'm just kind of curious if, if I've been, if I'm like thinking about this in a weird way or no, I have a lot to say about that. So uh, I, the, that ties into what I was going to say about the second half of my mm. teaching, mm-hmm. which is I work at Wilmington College right now, mm-hmm. um, which is a very small uh, liberal arts college just north of Cincinnati mm-hmm. in Clinton County, which is like cornfields, basically. Um, 1,200 students in the school. Mm-hmm. I'm the only music faculty that's full-time tenure track. Everyone else is an adjunct, so mm-hmm. like adjunct choir teacher and adjunct um, band, band director, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, no music major, just music minors. Most of the students who are music minors, um, their only musical training was band and choir. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just love doing that, and so they want to keep doing that. Some of them have had some private lessons in something, mm-hmm. but not anything very deeply serious or continuous. Mm-hmm. And none of my students with the very rare exception, will go on to be professional musicians in any way. Um, but a big part of my job then, because it's just a very small music minor, is teaching gen ed music mm. so that students in the college can get their fine arts um, requirement right. out of the way. Right. So like a music appreciation kind of course. It was called Bach to Rock whenever I was in, okay, yeah, in yeah. undergrad. I, yeah. I hope that I, that's such a weird title to have. For I don't class, structure but. my class that way. Yeah. But yes, uh, like that, Bach Rock, yeah. This was 20 years ago, too, so yeah. I, I hope it's changed since then. <laughs> it's getting there. Um, <laughs> um, but it's so funny because um, when I ask my students to do something in class as simple as sing with me, mm-hmm. they can't. They, they can won't. or they won't? Both. Okay. They really can't, though. Mm. I really do. Like, I do mean can't. Um, they don't know nursery rhyme songs. Mm-hmm. They don't... Um, they've never seen a violin in real life. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and, uh, and so I definitely um, see in those classes that 
they just aren't getting any musical training at all, no musical exposure at all. Mm -hmm. That's a, you know, if you're looking at the history of of like live music making in this country or in person music making, that's a that's a new development as of like two generations ago. If you go back mm -hmm. two or three generations, like much more likely to have had a piano in your house, mm -hmm. much more likely to have had a, uh, been in choir in elementary school or whatever it might be. Yeah. Like, it, that stuff is going away. Yeah. Um, and so the, th my students just don't, they don't know how to talk about music. It's very, very, very unfamiliar to them. And mm. it, um, it, it really shocked me and surprised me when I first started teaching that kind of class. I mean, as you were talking, I mean, it makes me feel like there needs, to, I, I listen to a lot of Neil deGrasse Tyson yeah. Um, podcast. I don't know if you've listened to his podca podcast called Star Talk. I haven't, but it's I love him. Remarkable. He's a national treasure, and I <laughs> and it's just like whatever he's talking about. He's able to boil down quantum entanglement to a digestible thing where I, where somebody like myself can be like, oh, yeah, you know. And I feel like we need somebody that does that for society for like what your tax dollars go for. You know, somebody that can help you understand what it is you're paying for. Yeah. And really, and then I feel like there needs to be somebody in the arts that is conveying to people. Yeah. This is the argument that I, I always get frustrated, like having grown up in a small town, politically far leading to the right, where I grew up hearing about supporting the troops and like, we're, we need to be strong. We're fighting the enemy and all this stuff. And I was like, listen, I'm all for fighting the enemy. I hate enemies. Like as a kid, you know, <laughs> I don't like enemies. So let's fight them, you know. <laughs> And, you know, I have I have family in the military. I have friends that were stationed in Iraq during the second war. And, like, yeah. I get it. But the pe then I was like, well, it seems like all the people who are fighting hate art and music and women and, like, like all these things. It's just like, well, shouldn't we have all those things if that's the thing we hate? Oh. Or countries that don't have that? Yeah. Like, seems like that we... We should have a lot of it then, right? Like, we should have a lot of the arts. We should have a lot of respect for, like, all of these things that I'm like, well, there's a big disconnect here. Because yeah. you're closing, we're giving the Pentagon a $700 billion, $700 billion budget, but we're closing the home ec and the industrial arts from my class, from mm -hmm. my high school. And then teaching Bach to rock and expecting that to be the sort of cultural foundation upon which the American soft power is based. Like, yeah. we have plenty of hard power. What we need is soft power, which is smart people who are can be nuanced and talk about yeah. Queen, but could also talk about Beethoven. Absolutely. You know? and, I'm with you 100% on that. You know, and Parliament Funkadelic. Like, yes. all of those things need to be in the same yes. boat. Yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. Uh, the I mean, all my students love music. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that my college students don't love music. Yeah. They Love, they live and breathe for the music mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. they know, right. but it's what comes into their ear, ear, earbuds. Right, right, right. Um, and they've never understood that music is uh, a, a tactile thing. It's a hands-on thing. It's a thing that you do with your body. It's not just something you listen to. You know. Well, how how much of it? How much of it do you think, though? Is like, I mean, I'm. I don't think I enjoyed any of my music history courses. <laughs> I found all my old music history notes and I fell asleep because the, the line, the, my notes trail off at the end. Yeah. Of the <laughs> yeah. And no, I, I know what you're going to Yes. Right. But I had a music, I had a teacher at Yale, Joan Panetti, 
who taught ear training there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, can you, can you give me a lesson on Bach on the marimba? And she's like, sure. And she came to, I don't know if you know who that is, Joan Panetti. She's, she's amazing. She's mm-hmm. retired now. She came down and she's just like tearing apart everything I'm doing. And she's like, stop. We had been like working for two hours on this, on the G major prelude. Like it wasn't even the hardest thing, you know? And she's like, did you know that Bach had 23 kids? And I was like, no. <laughs> and she's like, well, he did. And he had to write a new mass every Sunday. Imagine how crazy he would have been. Yeah. He's like, and she's like, you're playing this like like you're wearing a suit and tie at a funeral. <laughs> she's like, play this like you got up and had to feed 23 kids. Yeah. And then go to your job in Leipzig or whatever. You know, yes. I'm like, oh, okay. Then I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. When Beethoven was writing, it probably smelled a lot different. Or Bach. It probably smelled a lot different. I smelled like horse shit, you know? <laughs> and, like, that... Maybe I should try to play... Beethoven's tempos, yeah, they're really fast, but maybe when he was dying or getting older and losing his hearing, he wanted to hear what he saw. Yeah. And maybe that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, like... So, anyway, yeah. just to think, like, con- context to me is the thing that is cut out of all of our studies. Yes. 100%. Um, the... And this gets back to what we were talking about earlier. Sorry, I'll eventually let you answer about, the second part of the no, question. No, 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 it's fine. About how feel, me feeling uncomfortable in mm-hmm. the conservatory environment or the academy environment or whatever. Yeah. Um, is because there is this tendency, uh, both within the, the institutional world of classical music, but also just within the general populace, to treat classical music as this thing on a pedestal mm-hmm. that is a gift from God that we are not worthy of. Mm-hmm. Um, and how dare you sully it with your mistakes and human attempts to play it, you right. know? Um, and I think that's the wrong approach. Uh, I think objectively, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is objectively true. But, you know, nobody think, listens to me, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it, it is beautiful, but, uh, and I'm very grateful that we have all kinds of music, though, is the thing. Like, mm-hmm. classical is just one of many to me. I don't know. I don't know. No, yeah. I think it's, I mean, I think it is one of the disservices. I think it's the, I think it's one of the reasons why now with social media in the mix, and this will dovetail a little bit of what we were talking about leading up to the podcast. It's like, I, I, social media, to me, I've been really horrified at the way, in the same way that I feel like educational institutions have to kind of cut the context out in order to just give you information because that's what they feel like is happening. Yeah. Like the way people are on online, for example, and I just have, for me, I react when people are like cancel Beethoven. I'm like, what did he do to you? Like, honest to God, like (laughs) honest to God, what did he do to you? Like, and I understand, I understand, I get the, I understand where that comment's coming from. I get it. But I think if we had, if we knew more about him and knew that he was actually very, he didn't like any of his drafts and was constantly chopping them up and re-editing them, some composers alive today might be like, oh my God, that's what I do mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when we look at somebody like Wagner, it's like, yeah, let's look at all of the context around everything, everything. Mm-hmm. But also, would you, are you personally passionate about the music that you care about so much that you're willing to build a building i don't have to love that mentality but there that's that's not an uninteresting thing to talk about in context to why the rest of his music 
is this crazy grand th- there's all the anti-semitism yes absolutely but i think when we teach this stuff like these are people they were all composers and the bach cello suites get progressively harder because i think bach was hanging with a cello player and probably got the cello player really drunk by the fifth movement and was like hey can you try this awesome thing and then that's why you opened up the fifth the, the last one and it's just like like these are flying around it's because he was getting to know somebody and to yeah. know the instrument and but we don't talk about that yeah the context the context is is definitely um what makes something meaningful to me mm-hmm. i'm not a person who 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 wants to just appreciate music as an object and that's it i, w- I want to know the context of the music um and uh and and so in that way the context of the music does affect whether um i'm uh open to it or mm. not uh like explain that how so well, if, if if it's written by someone who's a jerk, then it's going to make me feel like I'm... Have Has that happened? Have you listened to something... Give me an example. Like, is there... If you, I mean, if you don't want to give... If I it's don't want to call anyone a jerk. No, no, no it's fine. Um, well, let's maybe keep, keep it to people who are 300 years or older, so there's nobody alive that... Well, them. like the Wagner example. Yeah, okay, so... Talk like, to me about that. Wagner is very interesting to study and to mm-hmm. think about. Mm-hmm. But I can't say that um, I I can't say that I'm going to be carried away mm. listening to Wagner. Mm. I can't say that I would be either. Just to be clear, I'm I don't have a stake in the Wagner game at all. And I, it, it's just yeah. There's I, it, musical reasons, and mm-hmm. there's but then it's more the contextual reasons for mm. me. You know, I get as I'm listening to the music, then my mind wanders back to oh wait, <laughs> like. <laughs> This was also probably playing while at the Nuremberg rallies, yes. you know, like or right. whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those are the, and those are things I think that are like that to me is necessary to be in the conversation. Yeah, like it's what makes it's what makes Wagner's like I to me like that's why we need to look at it and look at all of like a yes and approach, not a like. Well, his music's so great. That's the art is the art. It's like no, no. no. I actually don't want to cut anybody out of anybody's life, but let's just call balls and strikes here. Like, let's yeah. look at what we're dealing with. Yeah. And then society can choose. But, you know, this was a real person. He walked the earth, had a huge impact on a lot of people, and we need to learn from it. And Yeah. Um, but, like, that same con- t- concept is happening today. Like, uh, there's m- musicians that are... There's a ton of musicians that I'm not going to call out publicly here, but, like are objectively abusive people who are tax frauds are uh some of them murderers like like (laughs) you know like you know like but we have no problem giving them a vma or you know an oscar or or a grammy or whatever and like Mm -hmm. i'm trying to the reason the context thing is interesting to me and this is i'm kind of asking a a non-question question here like do you, what do you think people, like right now, who's the Wagner of our day, I guess is what I'm at, like trying to think, oh, like, what just, are the things that we're unaware of that 200 years from now, people are going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe you guys didn't realize this. I mean, I think I can say pretty objectively that R. Kelly is going to be uh, oh, wow. yeah, that's, looked at that way. Yeah. Right? That's, that, that's about to be, the verdict's about to come in for is that, that right? trial. Yeah. I was just hearing about it on the radio today. That. And he, but his, but his career was also like pre, 
like the ability for everybody to document everything. Right. Like yes. that was, which is, I think how he got away with a lot of stuff, but. And then that's why he got in such big trouble. Well, now. Cause he videotaped it. Right. Like, yeah, he didn't. I mean, I don't even know. I don't pay I close watched, enough attention, but I, what he's been charged with is enough for me to feel oh, sick. You know, one person, I, I mean, Michael Jackson. Oh my gosh. But I'm just going to, there's a podcast called constant honesty and I, I can't not listen to Billy Jean. Can't do it. I can't not do it. Like, you know, but that's the thing. I'm wondering if 200 years from now, like what he, like Michael Jackson is somebody who has objectively had one of the largest cultural impacts. Everybody knows what the moonwalk is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All over the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the same way that at the time, everybody might've known what Bayreuth was, you know, <laughs> like, like what, what it's interesting to me to think about that stuff. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean I'm going to wake up and have an existential crisis when I listen to Michael Jackson. But when I think about Wagner, or I think about Beethoven or whoever else, I'm trying to think of it in that context. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, as a teacher, right? The, when, sorry, I'm, yeah. when I'm presenting this kind of stuff to my students, I do exactly what it is you're saying. I I, mm. I present the full context. Mm-hmm. So if I was going to teach a lesson on Michael Jackson, I would say m- m- possibly the most influential pop star of all time. Also, this is what his life was like. Mm-hmm. And I'm, it's not my job to draw any conclusions. Mm-hmm. And actually, just in general in life, yeah. I don't think that it's my job really to draw conclusions. Mm-hmm. People are complicated. I know that's something that people say when they're like trying to stop cancel culture or whatever. I'm not trying to like align myself with I, anyone. I'm in agreement with you 100%. But I, I, I just think people are complicated and... Um, you know, in the way that I conduct myself, mm-hmm. I just want to um, try to show people understanding and compassion mm-hmm. and help them feel safe and help them feel like they can express themselves, mm-hmm. help them treat each other more nicely. And that's it. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. trying to um, uh, send anyone... Um, and banish them to the woods forever. You know, like I'm not, mm-hmm. that's not what I'm about really. Mm-hmm. Um, accountability, sure. But not canceling, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's the weird, I mean, it's the like, we're in this time right now where what the definition of accountability is different for everybody. Yeah, well, and yeah, that's, that's very different. And that, that, but that's always been the case. I mm-hmm. mean, but how we adjudicate some of these things culturally, I think I'm, to me, I, I where I have the existential crisis is when I have to start being like, well, this is my line for who I will listen to musically or whatever it is. Like, this is my line for who I'll let babysit my children. <laughs> you know, that line is, I, I want to make that super clear. Yeah. But that line, I think for me, has to be different for who I listen to on the radio when I'm making coffee in the morning. Mm-hmm. Personally, for mm-hmm. me. And it doesn't have to be that way for everybody. Um, but when I start moving that line closer and closer to like a hard cut where I have to, then I feel like, well, I'm going to have to cut out a lot of people. I love a lot, Mm. you know? And I just, I think where I grew up in -hmm. a very small town, it was not in your advantage to cut people out of your life. Oh, that's interesting. You needed everybody. Your dad was a farmer. I'll bet you my life savings that 
the guy two miles down the road is who's going to help him fix his tractor. Yes, that so is true. So you can't go putting that guy on blast at the local coffee shop because he said something you thought was inappropriate, you know? And I think for me, I think I'm learning that I'm trying to, I'm, this is my insecurity. I'm trying to be okay with that being something I can't actually change about myself. Mm. And I think these last two years mm-hmm. is something that being stuck at home and having, like, that we've all had some sort of existential crisis on some level, like, that insecurity for me was was the one I personally had to deal with the most. It was like, am I actually, do I actually feel okay saying I listen to Michael Jackson or I watch, I listen to Mike Tyson's podcast. Yeah. He is an accused rapist, spent mm-hmm. time in prison, uh, pretty violent athlete, bit, bit a man's ear off. Yeah. But also is now a pigeon farmer. And is probably one of the most genuine people on a podcast I've ever listened to. Well, I can't do a podcast with someone who listens to Mike Tyson. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and again, I'm not I'm not like a Mike Tyson like champion. I'm not like like trying to get people to listen to his podcast. But to me, like if I would have cut Mike Tyson out of my life because of someone I don't even know, like I'm not even acquainted with him on a daily basis, you know. I would have really missed out on a lot of really great information and other people that he talked to mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have known. And I don't know, like that, I'm not quite, my insecurity is still like not quite solved, but is there anything I'm saying? Like, I, like, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. There's no question here. I'm just sort of puking out where I'm, <laughs> what I'm scared about, Brianna. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, okay. I'm going to pose the question to you if that's okay. I love it when people Turn ask the tables. questions. So, uh, do you feel like any part of that journey for you these last two years relates to the fact that you're, at least by all appearances, like cisgendered white straight dude? Like, is In that. In terms of. Like, um, that has been the demographic that uh, everyone points to and says, you have all the privilege. Mm. Um, you have all the power, mm-hmm. like, sit down and shut up and let the rest yeah. of us fix the world that mm-hmm. you all messed up, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, like, is there, any, is there any part of you that, like, is trying to grapple with that? I think that, well, I, I think my first reaction is yes, but I, but I think for me, that conversation, the thing I'm trying to get comfortable about saying out loud is that that frust like paint not you weren't painting with this brush but when people say oh well the reason you said that is because of this which happens more often than i see on social than not on social media like when that's the response back to me what that says is somebody is or what i what i feel whether or not this is true my feeling is like you've literally said the most obvious thing to me mm and then use that as a way to discount something I personally, which I don't have any way to prove to anybody how much time I've thought about this stuff and how much personal like days of like crushing anxiety where I I literally don't leave the room because I'm afraid that I'm going to mess something up or it's just not worth it. You know, Um, I feel like what makes me not even want to enter those conversations is like, Oh, you, all you got is your broad brush out. I'll I'll do something else. Mm. I'll go talk to somebody else. And mm-hmm. I think that I think that reaction is happening a lot more than people are willing to 
are aware of. I think because that conversation gets shut down immediately with the, mm-hmm. uh, well, you're all these things, so clearly you must not understand this thing. For me, the beginning of the two years happened like the George Floyd. George Floyd was murdered on TV for everybody to see. Mm-hmm. And we all had to watch it. I spend a lot of time working in steel band communities in, in New York and in Trinidad. And um, I am not at all claiming to be an expert at all on race. Mm-hmm. I've been very fortunate from a young age in high school to have been spoken to and been made aware of like police violence and things like that. Being in pan yards in Brooklyn where the cops walk in, they walk right by me and go search all the bags of the eight-year-old kids playing steel drums, you know? And the, the, the white woman who comes up and calls the cops because of noise violation, every rehearsal, Hmm. like I see it, it happens and it's gentrification, all that stuff. To me, the exit, I, I had a real hard time with the George Floyd thing, not because of like, yes, of course of he murdered that man. I'm sorry, that was murder in broad daylight. And like, but the broad brushes came out. All of a sudden, the medical community is saying, racism is a virus. It's okay to go protest. As long as you're wearing a mask, it's okay to go protest. While at the same time, there's protests happening at state houses for, you know, stop the steal or whatever it was happening on the right. You know, and, Mm -hmm. but the liberal, my, the, the people on social media, it was just like, because it was Trump that didn't count and they're killing everybody. But meanwhile, 30,000 people in the streets, all screaming at the top of their lungs was okay because it was racism. Mm. I, if I'm, so I'm at home locked in because I've also just come from visiting my two friends who lost their two year old to a seizure And we had to drive by them while they sat in their front yard and wailed like the craziest sound I've ever heard, Brianna. Like, we had to drive by them. And I couldn't get out of the car and hug them. They're six feet. They're like where that piano bench was. I had to drive by. Yeah. And it's on Facebook Live. You can pull it up and watch me get out of my car and go like, and get back in my car and drive three hours home. Mm -hmm. I get home. I'm told racism is a virus. It's okay to go out in public. Mm -hmm. And so this incredibly traumatic thing with George Floyd happens. It's not related to me. This traumatic thing with my friends and I'm following all the protocols that the government is telling me to do and the CDC and everybody follow the science, follow the science, follow the science. And I get home and this trauma, like now all of a sudden, and I just was like, I'm done. Mm. I can't, I can't actually process this because Mm -hmm. yes, I'm a white straight male Yes, but I just heard a sound from two people I love and care about more than anybody on the planet other than my wife, and I'm not capable of processing that. And I know that many people I work with, black people, I know they hear those sounds too, and it's for different reasons, and I get it. Mm -hmm. But this moment, I'm sorry, racism is not a virus. It is an ideology that plagues us as a society but at this moment when there's an actual virus going around, like we, we can't equate those things and all of a sudden mash it up. And now we're here. We are two years later and we're wondering why as a society, we're all like baffled as to why like some of these things aren't working very well and we're not talking about it well. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, 
the long answer to your question was like, I, I feel like I'm a person who thinks a lot about what I do and why I do it. Um, and I stand, I actually, yes, I am not cutting Steve Reich out of my life. Mm-hmm. Not going to happen. You can think, I guess I had to be okay with people that I care about thinking I'm a racist. Because mm. I can't stop that. Yeah. If someone thinks I'm a racist because I associate with Steve Reich because of something he said in the 70s, um, that's fine. I can't actually, I can't solve that for you. I can't, I can't make you think otherwise. But you're more than welcome to come and see me hang in Brooklyn with 140 Caribbean pan players for weeks on end. And I'm not asking that you expect anything other than to then maybe judge me with that too mm. in the mix. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know that about me, whose responsibility is it to teach you about that? And if it's my responsibility, like, I just, as I played that over the last two, played that out in my head, how to have that conversation, if somebody did call me out for the Steve Reich podcast that I did, you know, like, I wrote out a million responses, like public apologies, Hmm. and I couldn't do it. Because mm-hmm. I just kept coming around to, I understand you're upset. I love this person. Mm-hmm. And and I know you're upset that so-and-so of my family might have voted for Trump or doesn't want to get the vaccine or whatever. I understand you, you're asking me to tell cut somebody out of my life that I love, and I will not do that. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know if that answered your question, but... No, it does, because... Um well, it brings us to, to you know, um, I was saying earlier that what I try to do is just to show the people in my life compassion and understanding, everyone I encounter. Mm-hmm. But that is always made more complicated when the idea of power mm-hmm. comes into that equation. Mm-hmm. And as someone who in my life, I hold positions of power, mm-hmm. I have to make decisions about who I give access to and who mm-hmm. I don't. Um, and so, you know, what you're, what you're talking about with the, the, the protests and your, your friends who lost, lost their child and, and Steve and all of these kinds of things, you're, it's, this, it's this really difficult, messy mix of positions of power having access, having agency, and then personal relationships that get all tangled up in that. And I'm not, I don't have any answers for any of it. I'm not suggesting Mm. that there's a right way to handle it or a wrong way to handle it. I'm just acknowledging, like, that's really hard. And that is definitely something I grapple with every day Mm. as well in my professional life and in my personal life. Well, it's one of the things, I mean, with the vaccine discussion, right now like it's one of the things that i personally have i mean i'm vaccinated i would get 12 more if they offered them to yeah. me. like i don't care like pump me up baby and Give me you get a vaccine and you get a i vaccine. take it every morning if i had to like um and i'm totally fine with masking like all of the all of the things um but for me working in, in caribbean communities a lot when the vaccine thing came up you start to hear everybody talk about like, oh, the black community is vaccine hesitant. And then you see a post about the Tuskegee experiments and like, well, this is why. And it's like, 
you know, then, oh, well, that, blah, 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 we'll just get over it. And you just hear all these discussions, and it's just like, oh, my God. But on the ground, what was the vaccine that was sent to that community? The Johnson & Johnson vaccine. One dose. Why? Why do you think? Well, I know, I know why. Um, there was the belief that um, because of instability in their, like, daily schedules, that they mm. would be less likely to go back for a second dose. And... That's based on a presumption yes. about a large group of people yes. that basically they can't tell time. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so one dose gets sent. What was the one vaccine that actually had a, was halted because of blood clots? Mm-hmm. Right. The Johnson, Johnson & Johnson yeah. vaccine. Mm-hmm. What's the one vaccine in New York that is not accepted by the WHO? The Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Oh, I didn't like, know it that. May, it may be now, but but when so anyway, just to be clear, it may be now. But at the time when like the New York Excelsior passed, like all these things were were being like we're going to have vaccine requirements to eat indoors. Huh. There were two that were accepted, and so like to me, it's not rocket science. Like you made a you made an assumption about a large group of people. You gave them the one dose. That's the dose you pulled back, and now they're not really jumping at the bit to get another one. Mm. So. But then, after again, to relate it to the George Floyd thing, where for two years, everyone is talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and access, as they should be. Totally support it. Nobody wanted to talk about the idea that by Carnegie Hall having a vaccine mandate, totally understand it, or by concert halls having anybody having a vaccine mandate, who, is, who are the people who are excluded from those places by default? Mm-hmm people of color so shouldn't we have one deia meeting that's about that mm. no because public health well i thought racism was a virus like to me this is where like <laughs> i see that it's okay. it's like all of the when the rubber meets the road i think I, i've just been shocked at how quickly people people's ideologies go out the window and then you just run to your own because mm-hmm. you're afraid and rightfully so again it's like i got all the vaccines i don't want anybody's kid to die i don't want anybody to get sick but for two years you people have been talking to me about like literally the everything in society is contributing to racism and we need to talk about what type of doorknobs we have who what's the access who what scholarships are going where like all of these things are effect- which they do mm-hmm except when it came to the vaccine and they and most people have no problem you know and it's like i understand it but i yeah. just feel like we're yeah it's just I mean, so messy i it's, guess it's, it's messy that's exactly right it's very messy it has been messy it's going to continue to be messy because that's mm-hmm. humanity yeah. the problem is that policy can't be messy policy right has to be clear. Has to be clear. <laughs> and I agree with that. It should be. Yeah. yeah. And so with, with, with that, I mean, my, my school just announced a vaccine mandate mm-hmm. for the student body last mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the majority of the student body at the school where I work, they come from the be- kind of background that you and I come from. Mm-hmm. Rural, mm-hmm. Midwestern, small town. Yeah. Or... Um, another portion of the student body comes from Cincinnati, mm-hmm. Columbus City area, and 
both both of those populations there not wanting to get vaccinated. So mm -hmm. it's been very dramatic um, for all, uh, uh, all the reasons that you were mentioning. It's just, it's messy. There's all kinds of reasons to not want to get vaccinated. There's all kinds of reasons to want to get vaccinated. And policy can't make space for mm -hmm. humanity sometimes. Yeah, that's, it's the, th it's the, th yeah, yes. And that, that depresses me, Brianna. <laughs> You know, like it's, you know, the and humans, I think, like our default is to be self-preservational. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Like, yeah, our default MO is like survive, survive, survive. Right. And mm -hmm. so when you're fearful, you will say things that you clearly don't mean just to get out of the situation. Right. And to to say, you know, um, I to talk about people who don't want to get the vaccine as being stupid. Mm. It's like, well, okay, that's the same. That's the same. You're, that's, you've just said something that is kind of impossible to retort because mm. I'm the one that has to prove to you why people aren't stupid and that I'm on the defensive here. And you've said, and, it, and you're making a case that's like about medicine. And so like, and I agree with you that the vaccine, but the premise is one I can't really, I think your premise is wrong. And I don't know how to, like, you need to rephrase the, the statement. People who aren't getting vaccinated perhaps are, have complicated reasons. Like that's, but that's not a, that doesn't feel good to say. <laughs> that doesn't feel good to say over beers. Like, yeah, right. but I think, but also people don't, people don't like to be talked down to. Like, this is the other part of like all of this that, you know, in art, in the new music community, Mm -hmm. that I feel is a problem there. I feel like that, and this is something that I have felt for a while, like like the, there's issues of race and gender, but there's also issues of class. And the new music community has a real bad issue with class. I have never felt comfortable at any new music hang I've ever been at. Mm -hmm. Like, because I don't think anybody there actually wants me to be me. And that is the Ohio bumpkin who likes to say things like wash and, you know, crick. And like, I like weird colloquialisms and, yeah. you know, like, I have actively, and again, this it's a first world problem. I'm, it's not a real, like, I, my life hasn't been suppressed in any real way. Mm -hmm. But when I think about moments when I actively am not being myself. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. And if that's the goal I want for everybody is to be themselves as quickly as possible, whether you're black, white, trans, straight, like, I want you to be you. Mm -hmm. And if that is trans, tran like, great. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. We'll be happier if everybody can just be themselves quicker. And it's like, in the new music community, I feel like, yeah, I'm definitely pretending. And I hate it. It um, is the worst feeling uh, in the world. Yeah. I'm honestly... I know exactly what you mean. I'm kind of with you there. What, why do you Why do you feel that way? Like, what for you? Why do you think that is? Uh, that I feel like I'm pretending when I'm in the new music. Yeah. Well, I I think that I've I've worked my way through that in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, like I've adopted a little bit of the attitude. Like you're just going to deal with my Minnesota friendliness. And <laughs> That's it. Um, sorry, I'm going to be nice to you, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, the, you mentioned the, that there's an issue with class, and I do think mm -hmm. that there is an issue with class. Um, 
in in new music, just like with anything, uh, in 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 the classical music world, there's a, you have to pay to play, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you there's name dropping that happens and there's um people scoff at you if you haven't heard of something there's no clapping there's yeah why would you clap there there's no good food yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry just calling balls and strikes i spent a lot of time in pan yards in in brooklyn there's great food and they're usually served out of a pot (laughs) that you wouldn't dare eat anything out of if you saw it in another restaurant but it is the reason the food tastes the way it does and the new music doesn't have good food i'll stand by that statement I, unless it's catered by by Italy or something in new york like i, I stand by that statement i have never been in a new music event and i got a concert and been blown away by the by the food in the green room oh yeah but anyway that's yeah, a silly thing to say but. no i mean um so I was just recently named the executive director for the Cortona Sessions for New Music. Mm. Which, Congratulations. Thank you. I still can't believe it's real. It's a huge honor. Um, the founder of the sessions, Michael Kirkendall, I'm so lucky he has faith in me that mm-hmm. I can continue his vision. Awesome. Um, and I think, I wish we had him here in this room actually for this conversation mm. about class and new music because... He also, Mike grew up in, in Kansas and Oklahoma, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, and then he went to MSM, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and he and his wife, Mary, with the Cortona Sessions, really worked hard to try to build a community um, where there wasn't a sense of hierarchy between the faculty and the students, mm-hmm. and that where there wasn't a sense of, you must do this right, or you're a bad person, it was just a sense of exploration, creativity, and appreciation of beauty. And I think he really did achieve that. But I also know, as I'm taking on the role of executive director, that I have to think really hard about these issues of class and accessibility um, to continue this session. So for example, it's been run in Italy um, for for a decade. Mm -hmm. Very expensive to get there. And we, as an organization, try to offer people as much funding as we can, but our all of our funding comes from tuition dollars and mm-hmm. a few small donors. Yeah. And so if a student gets a scholarship, it's because that money came from another student. You know, it's... Um, right, right. Uh, and, 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 and then there's the question of whether we should have application fees or not. There's a question of... My heart is warming right now. We do a summer festival called SOCI. Yes. And so... You know. I'm with you. I'm in the same pool and the water's cold, so it's... (laughs) Yes. It's hard. It's hard to... It's because I do think... I think it's really important to offer people these kinds of experiences of collaborative collaborative music making Mm -hmm. and working with faculty who really care about them. And also, for a lot of the students, traveling to Italy was their first time experiencing a culture outside of the United States. And what a beautiful culture to experience. Italy is amazing. and I, that's a valuable experience. So how can we make that more accessible to people who come from a different class background, such as lower middle class Midwest, you know? Or or lower middle class Brooklyn. Yeah. I mean, like the class issue to me, and this is the thing that like has, has kind of frustrated me a little bit, is like, you can't just say, well, let's fill, let's, let's make this room half black and half white and then we're done. No, like we figured it out because we took a picture and it's like, well, okay. But within that, you've got rich white kids, you've got middle class white kids, you've got same goes for Indian kids, same goes for Spanish, same goes for 
whatever. And then, you know, but then you've got a, you've got a, a wealthy black student who can absolutely pay to fly to Italy if they wanted to. But then you've also got a kid who, whose parents are on food stamps, who for, for them, a sliding scale where, where paying 20 bucks is a huge investment. And that person can feel like, you know, mm-hmm. it's important to understand that that is, if you don't deal with class, then you're only going to get a certain, you're going to get a certain class of all of these people. Mm-hmm. And is that what we want? Mm-hmm. And if the answer to that is yes, that's okay if you feel that way. I don't agree with you, but right. at least own that. And I feel like eventually when, when the community hits that class issue, I feel like it's going to get a little, it's going to get interesting, I think. Because, yeah. you know, what do you, because I think it affects the way, it affects the type of rep that gets commissioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, do, do large institutions want, I, just a question out loud, do, do institutions want lower middle class kids? Mm-hmm. That's just a question out loud. Uh, you know. It makes me think of when I have brought guest artists to Wilmington College to perform in the mm-hmm. past, mm-hmm. and by and large, the student population at our school is lower middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've brought experimental musicians, and sometimes the students are deeply engrossed and fascinated and love it, and they're like, "This is the craziest thing I've ever seen, and this is amazing." And sometimes mm-hmm. they just laugh mm-hmm. at at something that. In the new music community, we are supposed to like venerate it or respect mm-hmm. it or, or be, be quiet and listen and then applaud when it's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my students just laugh at it, you know. And so, yeah, are these institutions willing to embrace people who come in with a different perspective and say, that's ridiculous. What are you, do- <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I would say just to sort of come around and I mean, I've already stolen an hour and 10 minutes of your life um, and it flew by. Uh, so yeah. thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I'm, I feel good about the first in-person one. So I'm okay. very grateful. I was nervous up front. I'm no longer. I pre- I'm very grateful. Thank yeah. you so much. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think in terms of some optimism, I would say that the one thing I am also clocking on social media, just to sort of put in a positive plug for social media here, even though I loathe it most of my day, um, is there is a lot of activity um, in the new music the period in which so the four of us were scrapping and like really trying to break through a wall that was in front of us where there wasn't a whole lot of great percussion rap Mm -hmm. in 2004, there were like some major pieces, but there wasn't a lot of, and so we were like, and there wasn't any pieces that were like 35 minutes long, you know, drumming and Zanakis pieces. Like there's a few of those, but like, like we want to be like a string quartet. Like why can't we t- play a whole second half of one beat? Um, there was there was us and there was another handful of folks. But it now I look and there's like fifteen or twenty groups doing that all over the place and in various different genres and stuff. And I I have a little bit of like oh my god, like you know, like they're on our heels. Like what are we doing? But also like relief a little bit that the wall that we're all hitting on, there's just more hammers now. Like, thank yeah. God, like the wall's just going to come down quicker. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think we'll come down in bigger pieces over time than, than it maybe has in the last, in our, you know, last 20 years of our mm-hmm. graduating from school. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like this is the one thing that we don't as human beings clock well and it's progress. We, pl- we, we clock tragedy and we clock 
you know, mistakes and things we hate really well. But it is objectively true that since 2006, when I graduated from Yale and went into the workforce with So, it's night and day. Mm-hmm. It's not done and it's not at the, at the finish line, but... Yeah. I think for students who are coming up now who feel despondent about something they're seeing, like, yes, clock it as a data point that you see, but also trust that there's a million other hammers out there and we're here. And maybe you don't see Josh on social media, like, banging every time there's something coming up, but just just know the hammers are there and yeah. we're all, you know, and that's the thing I feel like that's the hardest thing as a teacher. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest thing. I, I haven't figured out how to express that to my students yet. <laughs> You know, right? We're here. We're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brianna, I am very grateful for your time, and I my my policy with the podcast is the door is always open for anything else. If if you're coming through New York, want to link up okay. and do a chat, yeah. want to hop on Zoom, you got a new project coming up, or there's something that you okay. heard me say on another podcast that pissed you off. Yeah, I want to fight you. <laughs> you want to fight? We've met in person, and you're, we are, we are now fighting buddies. Okay. And, and I'm grateful <laughs> good, for that. Good. Um, do you have any final words or anything you want to say before we wrap up? Like, where can people look you up if they're interested oh, sure. in the stuff you're working on? Uh, so, I, you know, you can just find me on social media. Um, I'm trying to build a, my Twitter following. Not great at Twitter. Great at Facebook, Instagram. Everything is just my name, mm-hmm. Brianna Matsky. Um, and my, my project is The Response Project. So theresponseproject.org. It's a commissioning project. That we didn't even really well, talk about it all. Well, we can talk about that for, two, for a second. <laughs> like, what is the Response Project? Uh, it's a commissioning initiative where I ask artists to create new works in response to something that's pre-existing. So, oh. uh, like, can you divulge any yeah, details? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, I com- I've done four big projects and then some small, offhanded ones. Always at the center of it is new music for piano, mm-hmm. um, written by a handful of composers. But artists from all kinds of disciplines are also invited to participate, um, and we just—I just pick something that is existing previously that the artists find interesting, and then we go with it. So, the very first one was a response to Stockhausen's piece Microphony One. Yeah, is that the Tam Tam? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the microphones. Um, you have hung out with Al Adi. Yeah, <laughs> we talked about that in the car. Over yeah, yeah, that did come. That did come from some of his students that idea uh and i did a huge response project to bob dylan's album highway 61 revisited oh nice um the most recent one was a response to pauline oliveros and her sonic meditations so that's a really cool concept i had never i mean the idea of a concept behind a commissioning project isn't new but that particular version i've i don't know that i've heard anybody do it that specific way and i think it's really I like the idea. I'm always like, I bristle a little bit when people are like, just let the composer bring you their dream. I'm like, I'm a percussionist. I'm going to have to haul it all around. Yeah. I'm not, right. their, their dream may be my nightmare. Like, can we talk for two <laughs> seconds about what you're doing? Right. And the idea of like having a relationship with a composer where they're like, maybe they don't have any clue who Stockhausen is. Yes. And that that's a limitation maybe in a way. Yes. I think limitations are very powerful and actually can squeeze out things that you would never have yielded before yes and so anyway i i'm really curious to see are, are there pieces done and recorded or like where are you in the process oh yeah that stockhausen one was back in 2015 um there's an album that came out of that 
it's on the Response Project website. Awesome, okay. Uh, I've just finished, I recorded an album for another project, a Response Project with Heinel Pivnik, who's a New York-based mm -hmm, violinist. Mm -hmm. um, the, and that album's also on my website. Uh, the Bob Dylan stuff is all solo piano. That album is, um, yeah, it's all online. And what's your next? Do you have one in the in the can now? Like, uh, so the Oliveros one was with Chris Graham. Okay. Um, and and so he and I still need to. We did we did that project during COVID, mm -hmm. and so we premiered everything in film form. Mm. And so the video premiere was very beautifully produced and edited. It's not a live premiere. It's a, mm. it's a produced, recorded premiere. And um, so that's all on the website for people to watch. It's gorgeous footage. My videographer was amazing. But we haven't recorded the album. Okay. Like we haven't gotten into a studio. So that's coming down the pipeline. Um, and I'm talking right now with a group of women who are working on whale conservation. And they've asked me to join them to do a response project to bring visibility to their work. Um, awesome. It's still taking shape. There might be a trip to Norway in the works. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Are you like listening to whale songs and whale calls and stuff? It's a little bit of that, but it's more about... So apparently whales play a huge role in um, absorbing carbon and... Mm. and uh, like through the, like the surface area of their body? Yes. Like, okay. Uh, and like... Um, like really could... If we had a higher whale population, we could offset CO2, um, which... I didn't realize, but that's Listen, what they wanted I'm, to draw attention to. So I'm anyway. all team whale all day. Let's do it. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> More whales. Uh, this is apparently this is such a well-known fact in in the conservation community that there's this new effort to build plants that suck CO2 out of the air in Europe, and the the plant that like factories or plants or whatever you want to call them, it's called the Orca Project. Like they named it after whales because. They know that, that is meaning like a, they're making where like power plants. Yeah, that's whose suck job it is. CO2 is out of the air. Suck, do they then put any like what's the byproduct? I don't know. I don't know enough about it, but yeah. So wow. Anyway, I, I, that's that's probably going to be the next thing. Well, yeah. that sounds awesome, and I think it gives us an excuse to do two more podcasts okay. in the future. <laughs> one about the Oliveros and one about the whales. Like that. That's awesome. And um, anyway, again, Brianna, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was yeah. a just a salve to be in a in a room with a person yeah. and not have to deal with zoom delay oh my gosh i internet. love real conversations Holy this shit. is great it's, it's been great so yeah. thank you so much and until the next time i really appreciate it yeah thank you okay i hope you enjoyed that conversation this podcast is brought to you by liquid drum liquiddrum.com down in waco texas uh, my good friend todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there great merch great content check them out liquiddrum.com also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. 
And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan centric. You can check him out at Mango Chow, C-H-O-W, clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. MangoChowClothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.